Good evening, everyone. I'm Ian James Wright from Washington, D.C., and you're listening to The Alphabetical Fugazi, the only podcast that devotes an episode each to discussing every song in the band's catalog, from Fuga A to Fuga Z. Joining me today to discuss Joe Number 1 from the 1989 Three Songs EP that was later repackaged with Repeater is musician, composer, and producer Pete Fraser, who, among various other projects, is the vocalist in a band called Down I Go. Pete, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? I'm very well. How are you? I'm great. Uh, Thanks for asking. Nice to finally talk to you. Um, You know, from early on, you have been active in the Facebook group for this show, contributing comments and such, which I'm sure I've read on previous episodes on more than a couple of occasions. So... Then you recently emailed me, and I was like, oh, hey, it's Pete from the Facebook page. It's, you know, nice to hear from him. And then in your email, you dropped the little tidbit that you played saxophone with the Pogues since 2001. (laughs) And I was like, are you kidding me? The fucking Pogues? I love the Pogues. Um, So I will... Who doesn't love the Pogues? Well, you'd be surprised, like, um, (laughs) because I remember the Pogues played... Sometime in the mid 2000s in Washington DC, uh, they so they had this tour. It must have been like 2006, seven, eight, something like that. And I, uh, I was like, oh my god! I immediately like got two tickets as soon as I could. And then I sort of started asking my friends, like you know, I'll just ask the best friend I have, like, do you want? Do you want? <laughs> I've got this extra ticket to the Pogues. Do you want to go? And to my shock, like I didn't know anybody who was a Pogues fan. I was wow, like, interesting. I was like, this is bizarre. I I think they're one of those bands, though. I, I think if you played anybody the music, they they can't have avoided it. But they're one of those bands that when you mention the name to sort of your average person, they might just say, eh, I don't know, I'm not too sure, not too sure. I seem to be cursed with people like that who are like million-selling bands that I've worked for, and you mention them to, the, you know, the question that you get to people, oh, who have you played with? And you reel off your your big hitters on your cv and they're like nah, not heard of them, not heard of them. Uh, <laughs> yeah <laughs> and i think the pogues are on uh, in that vein slightly maybe they're, they're on the alternative end of the kind of 80s mainstream i suppose yeah i guess it's not the kind of music that you would just you know slap on any radio station it is a bit niche just by nature of it being like kind of irish folk punk it's not like sure it's very different from <laughs> standard radio fare at least yeah, that's right. And I wonder if they were ever such a cultural phenomenon in the USA. I wonder if they're a bit more subcultural in the USA than they were in Britain. Oh, I'm I'm sure th- I'm sure that that's the case. I think like in recent years, it's it's been more of a thing for the fairy tale of New York to be played around Christmas time. Like I know that's oh, been huge in the UK since like forever, but I don't I like when I was younger, when I was a teenager, I never remembered hearing that song. No, interesting. I mean, it's yeah, that that is the big hit in the UK. Yeah, yeah, you know, I, that's I, the one. To my listeners, by the way, I I have to beg your indulgence as I ask Pete, <laughs> as I talk to Pete about the Pogues, because if there was ever another band I would do a podcast about, uh, well, I I wouldn't do it because I think you'd probably have to be Irish or at the very least British to like really do a good podcast about the Pogues, because there sure. <laughs> there's so many references in their songs that I'm like, this goes over my head completely. Uh, but Oh my god, I mean, as, as deep as you want to go, really. Oh yeah, like in Transmetropolitan, when uh, he sings <laughs> KMRIA, I, like, I had to look that up, and then I had a good laugh. <laughs> what was it? You have to tell me. Kiss my royal Irish arse. 
<laughs> yeah, amazing. When he's the uh, only Irish guy in the band, or the only Irish guy from the original lineup, because they're a London band, really, as well. Yeah, yeah. So um, there's that whole uh, aspect of it being very London Irish, and them them taking on. Uh, Philip and Terry to appeal more to the Irish audience but hey we're doing your Pogues podcast without even meaning to here now. <laughs> <laughs> no like, if if anyone out there starts a Pogues podcast uh, I'd certainly be happy to be a guest so you know hit me up uh, and it'd be good <laughs> and hit up Pete as well of course um, <laughs> are uh, are you privy to like what kind of shape is Shane in these days I think the last I heard he was wheelchair bound is like how's he doing uh you probably know as much as me. I haven't spoken to him in a few years. Yeah. Uh, he, yeah, I, I saw a picture of him and he was in a wheelchair, but he's actually been looking really well. Um, I believe like he and Victoria are together and she's always looked out for him. And, you know, he's had some color in his face last time I saw him. Looked good. He had some new teeth um, and looked happy and, and healthy. And that's fantastic. That's wonderful. It's yeah. Speaking of talking to him, so I guess you got to a point where you could understand what he was saying pretty well. <laughs> I mean, uh, in uh, the privacy of a one-to-one conversation, he's a very erudite and compelling person to speak to. Oh, I can only imagine. And far, e- far easier to understand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I watched a documentary about him like a year or two ago, and like, there's definitely subtitles required when it uh, had him talking. Um, <laughs> I can believe it. Um, well, that's it's so fascinating. Can I just ask you? Did you have favorite songs to play with them? Uh, yeah, I'm going to draw a blank now because I'm on the spot um, and I hadn't thought about it. It was always fun to play "Dirty Old Town" and we really brassed it up because my role in the band wasn't as a member of the band in any way, but as a brass section, an auxiliary brass section uh, with two colleagues. "Dirty Old Town" was really fun to play, playing the theme and having. However many people singing along with it there in the audience was always really fun. That's cool. I don't think I've uh, heard a version with brass on it. I'll have to look that up. There's a really good live album from Paris uh, from a decade or so ago. No, not quite a decade. Nine, eight, nine years ago. Nine years ago. Um, and that had some uh, a nice recording of Dirty Old Town. The band played Waltzing Matilda. That was a fun song oh to play. Oh my God, I love that song so much. Yeah. With a lovely uh, kind of orchestrated section of the band playing at the end. So we played that. It was always uh, terrifying to play because we always seem to wash out with a different number of verses at the end of it, depending on what Shane might sing. There's hundreds on the recording. Yeah. And we wouldn't necessarily always do all of them. He would uh, be selective about which ones popped up. So you had to be on your toes. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great. Yeah, they're, they're just so many amazing songs. Uh, I could... I honestly could listen to a, a a very deep and involved podcast about the Pogues, so I'm yeah oh. begging begging somebody from the UK to um uh, to get on that. <laughs> what good? I'll think of someone to ask. Yeah. <laughs> um. Well, uh, let me wrench myself away from that topic and ask you, yeah. uh, Pete Fraser, a little about your relationship with Fugazi. How did you first get into them as a fan? So, as a teenager, I was in a punk band. That I was a little bit of a passenger in, to be honest. It was in the sort of scar wave and I was in a brass section. Um, and But one thing we did do was hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of shows. We did about 600 shows in all, I think, over the years. And so I spent a lot of the time in the back of a van. And lots of, you know, the Minor Threat discography got put on the cassette player every now and again. And some bits of Fugazi did and it 
washed over me a little. And then at some point I was in my local record store. I used to live in Camden Town in North London. And I went in and I asked the guy, Nick, behind the counter, this band Fugazi, I've heard stuff about this band Fugazi. And his eyes lit up and he said, right, we're going to start you with Repeater. And he put a copy of it into my hand, which was Repeater plus three songs, mm-hmm. which I didn't even realize was a compilation of two records at first. Uh, and I stuck that on into my Sony Discman on outside the shop. And that weird little intro, writhing intro came on and I couldn't quite believe what I was hearing. And I couldn't quite work out what I was listening to. And I listened to it three times all the way through. And then the next week went back and uh, bought Steady Diet and continued on from there, really. And discovered them record by record in order without ever having seen the band. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I'm another one of those uh, unfortunate people who who missed them uh, really live. There was a slight crossover between my discovering them on record and and their final gig, which was 10 minutes away from my house hmm. at the at the forum in, in Kentish Town. Um, and I think I was away where, when they did those shows. No, I think I was away bad. on tour and I, and I missed it. And I probably, you know, didn't realize, as other people have said on this podcast, that that would be it. Yeah, I nobody did, including the band. So exactly, yeah, that's a shame. So I mean, you sort of assumed there'd be another album, another world tour, catch them next time, but no. <laughs> yeah, here's alas, here's hoping like uh, maybe Kuriki will get out there and tour the world or something. Oh, that'd be nice. I mean, uh, sort of for some reason, I'm not holding my breath for them going out and doing absolutely everything. And I live in Sweden now. And the likelihood of them coming to Sweden is uh, I'd really have to cross my fingers very tight indeed. Yeah. But, you know, yeah, it'd be, it'd be nice to check it out and sort of nice to see those people on stage. I'm sure we'll go on to talk about the musical personalities of each person involved. But they're still intact in the music they make today. And I think it's really interesting how, without sounding similar, the musical personalities of the band members manifest in an undeniable way in everything they play yeah that's that's true um just something about their i don't know they they have a, they have a certain style that's for sure i noticed uh, i would say in kariki just because of the different instrument he's playing i think joe sounds sort of different to me but uh yeah but yeah ian's got yeah. that uh, signature something about his guitar playing that's still uh, very much for sure is is Ian Mackay to me. Well, in the song that we're going to go on to to talk about, I I've got some sort of thoughts about that. Yeah, his approach to playing the guitar and his approach to how he hears chord sequences and harmony and music in in general, it feels very distinct without being in any way sort of over clever. It's quite sincere, and you know you listen only have to listen to him sing. And there's an enormous amount of sincerity in the delivery. Yeah. Yeah, well, let's just jump into it then. Why not? Um, We're talking about Joe number one. This is an instrumental track. Chronologically speaking, it's the first instrumental they ever released because the three songs uh, EP came out before Repeater, even though uh, they're packaged together with the three songs on the end. 
and that's that's how I first heard these songs for sure. And on uh, on the so you bought the three songs EP? No, no, no. I I first heard oh. it on the repeater uh, repackaging. So because what exactly was the nature of the release of the three songs EP? Because it didn't come out on Discord; it came out on Sub Pop, right? Yes, right. We so listeners, I I I think I forget all the details, but we covered this <laughs> in the break in episode. So go back and and check that out. Um, but yeah, it's it was it was a sub pop release for for like a fan club sort of thing that would like you'd that's right you'd get a a record periodically would just come to you and this was one of them, and uh, yeah, so so definitely a rarity in that regard as far as Fugazi goes, um, and it's it's very interesting little you can look it up on Discogs dot com, mm. very uh, different sort of packaging going on there. Um, very, there very can't co- be too many of them out there either. No, right? like that's that's a collector's item for sure. Uh, I yeah. don't I don't know how many there are, but I'd I'd love to have one in my greedy little hands in my vault. <laughs> yeah, and like just check out what the master was like and everything. I think it would feel like quite a different record. Yeah, yeah. Because I only, I only know it as to to me it is part of Repeater, and I have to correct myself. Right. Uh, yeah. In, I, you know, it, even the sequencing of the album just feels weird to me listening to the three songs in isolation. It is a little weird. And I think I've mentioned this before. It always sort of bothers me anytime an album comes out, like a reissue with bonus tracks or something. It's like, yeah. I appreciate having the bonus tracks, but I, I'd love having an album end with the song it was intended to end on, too. Sure thing. I'm a big jazz listener. And um, all Blue Note records that. Uh, on streaming platforms are there in their bonus editions which are twice as long as the originals and have six versions of the alternate takes and everything which is like as a document it's fascinating but it means if you just stick it on while you're making dinner you then listen to six versions of the same track with a load of guys (laughs) talking at the end and or scratch endings and not getting through the song and various bits and it's uh yeah it's not an album anymore but i i've never i i think this tags on to repeater really well you know i mean it's the only way i've ever heard it but it it feels odd if you if you stop at uh what would the last track be um uh shut the door shut the door yeah which is a great ending for an album but it doesn't feel like the end to me it feels like there's uh there's three tracks yet to come (laughs) but you know it's interesting how if when they repackaged it you have a cd that has a brendan number one on it and a joe number one so sort of I guess need to at least have those on the same, uh, the same little release. And of course, we've talked about Brendan Number One already on the show. That's right. And some of the introductory remarks I have about this song dovetail with that, because both of those songs, tracks, whatever you want to call them, are together. They're the most played uh, show openers in all of like Fugazi live show history. The data set is not quite complete, but as far as the data that is out there that I analyzed, uh, Brendan number one was in the lead by like by two. 98 uh, opening numbers were Brendan number one. 96 were Joe number one. Um, Interesting. Sorry, no, I have that backwards. Joe was the most played with 98. Brendan number one was with 96. Um, but yeah, who knows? It's it's really neck and neck. So um, Do you know if they alternated between <coughs> them and that's why it's so even or did they have long periods of uh, opening with each one? I suppose you could make a good graph about that, but I, I did not do that research. Um, <laughs> however, I did early on, uh, I emailed Ian Mackay sort of asking about this and he sent me a, a short email where he explained, quote, 
Joe number one and Brendan number one were typical show openers because they were instrumentals and gave us an opportunity to get a sense of the acoustics of the room with people on the floor. Um, parentheses, most soundtracks are done to well, most sound checks are done to empty rooms. And uh, end quote. So yeah, it's the sort of thing where they would sound check, and when they would finally come out on stage, they would play this instrumental so they could you know really listen without having to listen to the lyrics, uh, the vocals coming on, do any sound sure. adjustments, and then you know start the start the proper uh, set of uh, of songs with vocals. And it's an act of kindness to your front of house engineer and your monitors engineer as well to not have to deal with absolutely everything at once and have your mics feeding back yeah you know, take it one thing at a time get a nice band sound for three or four minutes and then deal with the vocals afterwards yeah and i suppose it's nice too in the way that this song builds up uh, sort of one instrument at a time and uh, it that's it right <laughs> gives gives the engineer a little bit more time in that way and, and able to concentrate on each thing by itself yeah i mean so speaking about the structure of the song that's quite a good hopping off point, I sure. think. Because uh, I read your Facebook thread asking people for thoughts about it, and there was at least one or two people kind of saying they liked the song, but they felt like it might have been a little bit of a dead end in that it was something that didn't get developed into a full Fugazi song, in inverted commas. Yeah, I have uh, and, John Rash on the Facebook group says, you always wonder with a song like this, why the decision to keep it instrumental? There's obviously a verse-chorus arrangement happening here that would work great with vocals, especially when the song ended up as a B-side. It feels like a bit of a lost soul in the Fugazi catalog. Um, so, yeah. There we uh, go. Yeah. But I think I'm. my job here is to defend it as a... <laughs> bona fide instrumental that does a job in the set that isn't necessarily just to do with sound checking but is to do with a dialogue with the audience it's it functions a bit way. like an overture right exactly yeah and it right so song goes on the studio version song goes a little bit drum hi-hats at the beginning Bass coming in with a line for 16 bars. Eight bars, guitar melody. Okay. And then this cool piano coming in right. after that, playing in unison with the bass line, which I'm going to come back to because that's special. Melody again. And then a big Fugazi stop. Yes. <laughs> there isn't a stop for anything to happen it's a stop for nothing to happen right for four bars and then in comes the melody again and then another big four bar stop with maybe some little scritchy scratchy sounds they haven't cut a <laughs> hole in it but everybody's there not doing anything then the melody again and then another four bar stop again the third one after this these reiterations of this eight bars of melody and then it just kind of tumbles into key change and this whatever you want to call it bridge or chorus but another section 16 bars of that and then back into a kind of droney version of the melody all the way through to the end now on the record that's really interesting so it's like a two idea song right you've got one bass line and then you've got another one right so to talk about that you've got the first bit which is just this G minor kind of uh, almost... I was thinking about that idea, right? 
it's four guys who were little kids in the 1960s. I hope yeah. I hope you're about to say exactly what I'm thinking. Go on. Oh, how interesting. All right. There's a bit of a sort of 60s TV show vibe about it to me. I was about uh, to when say you... James Bond. <laughs> it sounds like James Bond oh, to me. Interesting. I was going to say Peter Gunn. You know uh, the, yeah, the, yeah, 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 yeah. Detective series Peter Gunn. When that piano comes in, in unison with the bass, it has. It feels like it's cousins with a dun 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 dun. That low unison, menacing, minor bluesy, but kind of sixties hip, modish feeling thing. Yeah, that's the feeling I get from it. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely, I know what you mean. Yeah, I think those those two go along with each other quite well. Yeah, it's it's like something about it too. I, th- I guess the James Bond thing comes to mind because it's like a little bit surfy feeling in that bouncy yeah. sort of way. It's proper 60s music. Well, end of the 50s music, isn't it? Yeah. Like, and, and that kind of... There was something about menacing minor pentatonic bass lines in, in that era mm. of things, that kind of really sharp suit, moddy 60s thing. And it th- this has totally got that. And when the piano comes in in unison it just feels like you know you're that kid who found their way into the piano room at school and that's the kind of cool thing you would want to like pick out on the piano (laughs) you know with your with your index fingers of your of your left and right hand which is totally what it feels like it feels like somebody like hammering away at the piano and playing something cool and pentatonic to me for those wondering by the way that is ian mckay playing piano uh, per, I'll I'll put in the show notes. There's a brief section of an interview with Pitchfork that Guy did, uh, where Guy says, "Quote: Ian and Brendan are both really, really good piano players, and they've played piano in the past. In fact, Ian played some piano as far back as Joe Number One, one of our earliest songs." End quote. In case you were wondering, and you know they were clearly kids that grew up with pianos around, right? Because when they do these house demos. Um, or kind of little bits and bobs from instrument. There's a piano there for them to tinker on. Yeah. And it feels like a lot of the ideas may have been born at the pianos, and they don't feel guitaristic necessarily, some of those ideas, you know. Um, Thinking about Joe Number One, I mean, all the little bits and bobs that didn't really turn into songs, I'm So Tired. Do you know that tune on the instrument soundtrack, Afterthought? I do, yeah. That's the... like a, a Wurlitzer or something. <laughs> Feels a bit more studio-y, but they're, they're playing on like a stage piano of some kind. Yeah, it's sort and of it's like got... a, just a cheesy keyboard sort of thing. Exactly. And they've got their, you know, that that little fifths in the left hand simple pentatonic melody in the right hand thing is intact and it just feels like the way that Ian plays the piano. Yeah, I wonder if that was kind of a generational thing that has changed at all. I, I grew up with a piano in the house. as this sort of old, crappy, upright that was never in tune. But, yeah. you know, I I'd never learned how to play piano. But I certainly would go peck stuff out. Um, sure. Yeah. Uh, I mean, a piano is the best toy a kid who's curious about music could have, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, that's true. Because you can go and just hammer your hands onto it and a huge sound comes out you don't need to plug anything in and you don't need to go out and buy any strings and learn to put them on and you don't have to develop technique right like no. the first time you try to play a note on a violin like bow a note it's gonna sound awful 
But the For first sure. time you try to play a single note on a piano, it sounds like a professional playing a single note. It's beautiful. Exactly. It's really democratic, isn't it, the piano? And yeah. it's sort of, I think, a little bit like the guitar. If you're, I mean, I say this as someone who's really rubbish at the guitar, but if you're terrible at the guitar or absolutely fantastic at the guitar, there is still something you might have to offer through the use of it. There isn't really a kind of um, entry requirement because there's so much music out there with people not doing it necessarily too fantastically. Yeah. Um, that you've got permission to hammer your two index fingers left and right down on the piano and pick out a little cool sounding bass line. And it's like, right, there we go. That's what <laughs> I needed from this. I don't need to learn any uh, Chopin sonatas because I've got what I need out of this. Do you yeah, know what I mean? Yeah, and it's especially true if you're going if it's going to be in the context of playing with a rock band, like if you're if you're trying to play complex stuff on the piano, it just takes up too much space. Like all all you need is one hand to be a to be a great keyboardist that's in a loud rock band, I would Absolutely. say. Absolutely. And like, you know, this whole thing of a uh, I mean, it's that to me, it, that's one of the coolest sounds is bass and left-hand piano unison. It's a lot of that in jazz music from the 60s onwards. And Miles Davis, uh, 60s band, uh, the third great quintet. There's loads of left-hand bass unison. And it just, like, bolsters this bottom end and gives it some force and uh, just something. It makes it feel really percussive. It's very true. It also reminds me of... There's this band called Two Skinny Jays. Do you ever hear of them? I've never heard of them. They were this New York um, sort of, like, rap bands. uh like rap slash rock sort of thing and they had just such a great live show and very fun music but they had at least in the lineup when i saw them a few times they had a a, a guy playing a keytar you know and yes you know he'd just be using one hand but yeah there, i think there was one particular song that i can remember where it was like that he was playing this like low sort of ominous thing with a piano sound that doubled the bass guitar and they'd just be like jumping around doing this, and it's such a fantastic sound. It's cool, isn't it? Yeah. I feel like as well in the uh, to link into the Discord vein. I can't. I don't have a specific example in my head, but I feel like this is a bit of a Chad Clark sound as well, maybe. Hmm. And Smart went crazy. Beauty pill. That that thing of like dark bass lines, a very like high passed bass guitar, doubled up on a keyboard instrument to sound like cool and menacing which is like that's chad's mo right cool and menacing yeah i could see that <laughs> that's true and yeah it's just a total sound I, th- I think it's like you know it's one of those things that people that have listened to a lot of records are like hey i like the sound of that Let- <laughs> let's have that <laughs> it's interesting that the title of this song seems to be like okay this is this is a Joe Lally jam. Like this is all about the bass, but then it's sort of like he's, right. he's sharing space with this piano. <laughs> sure thing. And I think, you know, a title taken into consideration, I think we probably do have to credit him with the bass line. I was thinking about that today. Yeah, you would think so. Because I was thinking, oh, right, okay, here is, this is yet another example of uh, Ian sitting at the piano and a song springing from it. But no, I guess not. I guess it is something that Joe must have, come with or begun to play or whatever because else it will be called ian one this was my assumption too yes yes (laughs) so i mean like you know 
credit where it's due with that. And, it, and you know, it feels like one of his bass lines as well. It has that little, like, kind of rhythmic bounce to it that, uh, yeah, and yeah ha- has him all over it, really. And before the piano comes in, I was wondering if you heard this too. The bass guitar sounds to me like it's double tracked. Um, oh, interesting. Do you, does that does it sound like that to you? I'm because I'm not sure exactly, but it sounds like it has that slight chorusing effect of like two bass two bass tracks happening at the same time. Not that sure. hadn't even crossed my mind, but I know what you mean about the sound of it. I would imagine that there's something making it feel chorusy rather than that. Because one thing I was thinking is uh, it's a little bit not scrappy per se, but you can hear a lot of the sound of the left hand on the strings. Um, that in, in in an extremely clear way that I'd be surprised if it came out uh, from from a double tracked phrase, but I don't. I might end up going back listening to that and being like, no, I'm totally wrong. So I'm not too sure. Mm. Yeah, maybe it's like an automatic double tracking thing rather than like but actual like two tracks laid down. I'm not sure. Sure thing. Yeah, interesting. But then also, um, what bass guitar is he playing here? Because it's got a slightly active sound to it, hasn't it as well? Yeah, I I mean, I personally was was shocked to find out that Joe didn't play the Stingray that much in in later years. So sure. <laughs> it was kind of a surprise to for, me for the studio recordings. You mean, yeah. yeah. So I I always assumed that he was always playing the uh, the Music Man Stingray, but it sounds like one though, doesn't it? On this, it, it doesn't sound it like does a Fender to bass to me. Yeah, yeah, I reckon it is. And uh, so I I put that down to just uh, twangy active bass, maybe. I wonder. Interesting. Um, I, but I'm I'm talking like out of my own field of expertise in a big way at that stage. <laughs> it's not a saxophone, that's for sure. No, <laughs> but if it were, <laughs> if they were, if they tripled the baseline with a sax, like a oh, baritone sax or something, that would be pretty sweet. That would be my one uh, my one open door for a job in the future with Fugazi <laughs> for the reunion. <laughs> hey, cover the song. There are not many Joe Number One covers out there saxophone quartet joe number one <laughs> um, I'll, I'll get to work on it i'll send it to you next week beautiful <laughs> i'll i'll overlay it into the uh into the episode we have time <laughs> oh my god if you want to go record this and, and send it to me there is time to put it in the episode my friend we'll see how in the cold light of day we'll see how that <laughs> that idea feels <laughs>
the uh, I, I wanted to, to backtrack a little bit too. While the cymbal taps are happening before the bass even comes in, I really like yes. in this track how you can hear the hum from the guitar amps and little tiny finger noises of of hands on guitar strings. You know, it's it's not edited out, uh, and it, no, it feels very live in that way, which I like. I mean, stuff like that with this band, I never know whether it is the sort of dumb luck of ending up with an engineer that appreciates that approach or whether it's the band being like, hey, absolutely don't fade down any mics, please. Don't ride any faders in this. We want everything on and we want the whole thing like a kind of live mix. Yeah. Because it that's a huge part of the way the band sounds to me. And I don't know, like, you know, I've been in studios lots of times where without being asked, you know, I mean, talking in... Uh, digital era now um the engineer will just kind of snip everything all the silences out crossfade everything down the engineer will see their job as like making sonic space cutting holes for the kick drum cutting holes for the bake bass uh like trying to make space in the sonic spectrum for everything to be as loud as possible and that's a very non-fugazi approach and obviously they're using tape and it would have been a bit more of a thing to kind of mute everything in and out yeah in a dub mix but they don't do it and they don't sound like they're attempting to do it either no and i mean that goes also for the you know the signature fugazi pauses in this song too like you're you're right when when you talk about the the silence being important to this track it's true because it's not it's not simply silence you can hear um it's it's almost like you can hear them holding back during the pauses and like they're, yes. the, the tiny little sounds that the guitars make uh, sound restless. It sounds like, okay, I can't wait to come back in and be loud again. It adds to this exactly. energetic feel of anticipation. It's hugely tense, isn't it, in a way? Yeah. It has the, uh, from a listening point of view, there's an element of suspense to it and there's an element of stakes to it because you really feel like it's a cliff edge. You know, rather than a kind of like, you could totally imagine if you went into the studio to cover this song, it's like, okay, right here, we've got the tempo. Okay, here are the clicks. Okay. Okay, wait, 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 wait. You know, and it's just like, it would be, that would absolutely stick a pin in every bit of that tension and every bit of that stakes. Like the whole point of it is, I mean, I'm going to, come on to talk about this gap a little bit later on when we talk about some of the live uh, versions of it but but as a studio recording it it you need that feeling that they are not playing you know not that they punched out and then punch back in again like after their lunch break yes but that this is a full take and like the band are waiting to begin to play again you're exactly right and this may be just my imagination, but it always sounds to me like after each pause, they come back with more energy than before. And Interesting, yeah, yeah. And maybe they are, in fact, doing that, and they're, you know, attacking the guitars harder with the pick, etc., etc. Or maybe it's simply uh, an effect of having that pause there and, like, that, that contrast coming into play. There was silence... Now it's loud again. It's not actually louder than it was the last time they were playing. No, but no. just that contrast makes it feel like, okay, it's even more energetic now. Sure. And the little horror movie jump of something, uh, the expected unexpected happening of yeah. them coming back in again. But also, I don't know if you've noticed, uh, but they speed up quite a lot 
um, from beginning to end in this tune. And I think I didn't notice that, that is it's it's worth skipping back to the beginning. It's most of it I think happens between Brendan's hats and then the bass coming in. So it sort of like adjusts to its proper inverted commas tempo when the bass comes in. But they do continue to speed up slightly, and I think a little bit of it probably happens in those gaps because it's like and I don't mean it as a criticism in any way whatsoever I think it's good but um yeah it feels like it picks up energy and it picks up pace mm-hmm. as it goes on and also I mean like then let's talk about the second section so the dung 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 they yeah the more slip the more riffy part right I've been I've been sure just mentally calling it the chorus but yeah chorus bridge it's like whatever it is section two um they skip down a minor third and they're doing this thing between e minor and a minor it's what the piano is doing and he's really hitting it yeah you know it's uh it's a moment and the the contrast of it so everyone's playing the same thing basically and it's this contrast between section a and section B, it feels like a very conceptual tune in that way. That the first one is got these this kind of slightly almost floaty guitar idea over the top. It's a very open kind of melody. It's almost like that. It's got a bit of a Morricone cowboy tuneness hmm. about it. I do like it's quite twangy. I do like some Morricone. There you go. Like, and it just to be a real music asshole for a moment. Like, the first note of the melody in the guitar is a fourth in relation to the root. Mm-hmm. So the bass line's in G minor, and the guitar melody comes in in the fourth, making that a sus a four chord. Hmm. A C. That's right. Yeah. So a four, fourth up from the G, and so that for for the music practitioners among us a, a fourth is a undefined chord neither major nor minor now we know it's minor because of the bass line and we know it's minor because of where the melody goes later on ba, ba, minor third but this fourth that it comes in on at the beginning has a big wide open feel to it it's got like a really kind of floaty undefined open feeling to it in that big kind of morricone twangly guitar way and it to me that's really important because it's the building of tension and as with first so section. much like fugazi guitar stuff uh, they're playing like octave quote-unquote chords here right like they're not yes uh, when they when they play that c they're sort of you know layering another higher c onto it and and same with the the sort of like chords they go up and, and down to it's just octaves um yes and yeah, that's a really common thing with Fugazi to have that sort of, it's it's both undefined, like as far as a as far as chord colors, um, but it I I guess yeah, there's it just leaves it so much more open, and you can, I guess when you play those two, you can play louder and more distorted without it being so dissonant as to be unbearable. Sure thing, yeah, like uh, the harmonic frequencies that leap out of the amps are gonna resonate with that one note rather than a big six note chord yeah and sound gross <laughs> and you know i mean yeah that the communication between the guitar and the amp is obviously like a big deal for them as well right but it's again this just simplicity of 
pentatonic melody da, 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 over this pentatonic bass line. Like, nice and simple, all heading towards G. And then clattering in through these big, like, clattery, falling downstairs drum fills into the minor third down. It, like, really feels like you're home. And it really feels like you've resolved. And then, of course... It goes back in, like, step down in volume and, like, back into just... almost. They, they don't even really state the melody after that bit. It's just more open G minor sus sort of feeling stuff. It's, like, it's fantastic. It's, it's a concept tune to me that is about, like, tension, 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 tension. Big, jammy release in the middle and then, like, tension, 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 tension at the end. And when they played it live, they seemed to go between those two sections a lot more often than they did on the record as well. I love that you bring up Morricone as well, because I think whenever you are dealing with an instrumental track, something that comes to my mind at least is, uh, how would this be as soundtrack to a film? Sure. And I think with this song, uh, it is, I think it would be great with the right film. It's especially that, yeah, that's, uh, that opening part, um, you can you can imagine that playing over like establishing shots of some <laughs> I don't know city nightscape or desolate wasteland yeah. or something. Yeah. I think they're quite a filmic band in that way, like in the instrumental sense. There's, a, I think, because they really try and say this in a sensible way, like the playing is very direct. And they play what they mean to play. Do you know what I mean? There's no, there's no like dead weight guy like trying to get his guitar lick in in this band. Right. There's no, no, nothing's heading towards anything that is about like aggrandizing a certain personal thing or like there's nothing where you can be like, here comes the the feature. Do you know what I mean? It's music that is about like painting a picture uh, as a group of musicians. And you're right. It's extremely filmic in that way and like yeah you, you can like reach towards Morricone for for using the same trick if you want like big expressionistic simple octave melodies yeah that express something you know it's one of the strengths of Fugazi in not being virtuosos necessarily except maybe Brendan right like I would right, call yeah. uh, as much as I love the way they play guitar and bass I wouldn't call them any uh, can, any like of them uh, musical virtuosos, but that can be a strength uh, when it comes to making music. And it it sounds like they're they're really playing for the song and for the feeling. And when you think of it in terms of film soundtracks, it's like how often have you heard music on a film track and been like, wow, that that guitar solo in, in the <laughs> film soundtrack was so great. Like that was awesome. Oh like, man! No, you never notice the individual players like doing impressive stuff on a film no. st- soundtrack because that's and you know like, if ever there was a, the point. if ever there was like a a signature of an absolute turkey of a soundtrack it would be somebody feeling obliged to put a guitar solo in there <laughs> because whoever did the soundtrack was the, like missed a guitar solo yeah we're not i mean it's like <laughs> terrible <laughs> we're not of course talking about the soundtracks to like uh 70s pornographic films like in those <laughs> yeah go nuts on the guitar and use your wah pedal but you know <laughs> talking about proper film here 
oh yeah like taste all the way but um <laughs> it's it's interesting and like i think one thing i really like about the band is that that you know across the catalog beginning to end first record to last i don't know what these guys play when they pick up the guitar in their bedroom yeah because they don't want to tell me <laughs> and i really appreciate that you know like it speaking as a musician it when i'm sitting down in a rehearsal room with a bunch of other guys or girls the last thing i want to hear is like the thing that they're desperate to play do you know what i mean the one special thing that they've been working on really hard and it's like oh yeah man i can't wait to drop this it's like no keep that to yourself it like it might be serving your playing fantastically it might have made you really good it might have like taught you all sorts of stuff but keep it at home you know only bring that out if it if you've got a good reason to bring it out and if you've got a good reason to bring it out for god's sakes don't yeah i think <laughs> i think anybody who's been in a band has <laughs> had that moment of like yeah between songs like oh here goes the guitar player or bass player like noodling playing some like uh <laughs> impressive little thing they've learned it's like yeah we're between songs we're trying to talk about the next thing shut up for a minute when they always drop their musicality at that point as well when you're bringing in the thing that you've you've worked really hard on it's almost certainly going to come at the cost of your sense of time and your sense of participation and all the listening that you're meant to be doing to one another and it's like you know i mean no, no good band like honestly does this but but fugazi really don't do it i think like communication between four people and it is like absolutely everybody is switched on all the time is where the music comes from is the communicative collaborative aspect of it and you can call it lean or like fat free or you can call it whatever you want but it's like the the communicative abilities as musicians you can't better it because they're doing it and if anybody is doing that it doesn't matter if it's bob dylan or if it's Jimi hendrix it if anybody's doing it it's going to absolutely cook because if everybody's listening and reacting to one another then something is happening uh musically speaking do you know what i mean yeah and that's an aspect of fugazi that probably just became more and more extreme as they went on i think in various uh, places they've said you know in the early days we'd a, a particular person would bring in a particular song and we'd sort of develop that but more and more toward the end it, it got like okay we don't come in prepared with stuff we just build it all together sure and they probably had you know i mean i don't know if other people have spoken about this on your podcast but they probably had the privilege of being able to do that because it was their full-time job to do it so they could just come in every day and nobody had to be like, oh man, I'm sorry, I've got to go and like do my shift in the bar now. <laughs> right, right, right. It's like, you know, they were er earning a living from, a, probably quite a good living from being in this band and had the privilege to be like, okay, I'm going to go to work now and my job is be in the band. <laughs> and whether I get anything done or whether we just, you know, strike out, do our best, don't really achieve anything on that day. I've gone to, to work and I've... I've done my day and like having listened to sort of the way Ian talks about stuff he's not talking about that on a financial level but he really sounds like quite a workmanlike person if you know what I mean I do yeah like he really sounds like somebody I mean he always says oh you know I don't work as hard as other people I'm not I'm not doing like doing eight hours but he 
he sounds like someone who's quite proud of the idea that they go into the room and they do something every day, you know. And if you look at their output related to the number of hours in a day, they must have done an awful, 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 awful lot of stuff that didn't really turn into anything. So they really were going in there and just throwing stuff at the wall and giving things a go and picking up the threads that worked and leaving the ones that didn't. You know what I mean? Like really going to work. And it's, you know, if you've someone who's been in a band and it's like you've got to carve out that four hours for the one rehearsal a week and ask your boss for time off to go and tour and all the rest of it you understand that it's like as nice as that might be it's not possible and i think that privilege of being in a position where the band is your job and grabbing that with both hands and running with it is a really fantastic thing and has been very productive in the case of this band because they really developed over the space of uh, however many albums they turned into a different band of the same personalities through having put the hours in in a, in a big and significant way yeah, I, I certainly relate to that as like amateur musician from time to time. Like, I I had yeah. this I had a band where I like I wrote wrote all these songs and like recorded them to like basic drum software tracks. Put down bass, mm. put down guitar, and I sort of like got people to be in the band. I was just like, here are the songs. You just sort of have to learn it, and <laughs> we can like tweak little details. Yeah. But in that case, the feeling is kind of like, oh, that's great. Like, we don't have to spend, you know, we all have jobs. We don't have to spend forever figuring this stuff out. Um, but yeah. but uh, we, we certainly were no Fugazi also. So, right, interesting. Uh, it's, was, uh, was there ever the feeling that it was, now we're going to go and do a rehearsal for Ian's band? Yeah, I mean, well, I've been in a few different bands. Some of them were more collaborative. The one I was just talking about was more like, yeah, that's that's my band. I think, mm. I, I don't know if you've had experience with various bands. Like, I think any kind of band can work out that way as long as you're sort of clear up front, like, what the what the command structure is because like i've yeah i've also been in bands sort of like as a sideman to a person performing under their name like playing bass and yes. in that case it's like okay well you know she's in charge and like we sort of follow her musical vision and it's not gonna i'm not gonna try to bring in my own songs and and start things like that um so absolutely it's yeah. nice it's nice to have the freedom not to do that and just concentrate on your instrument and it's also nice to be in a band where it's like super collaborative just sort of uh as long as there's no miscommunication about what kind of band it is that's where the problems come in absolutely i don't are you familiar with um vic chestnut yeah a little bit you're aware that that gee became a, a session guitarist really for yes. him in the in the later years yeah in the last sort of two albums yes um, definitely one and, of f- and i have been wondering if he's been still like sort of writing lyrics and songs uh during that time or if, if he's got like a huge backlog it's hard to tell isn't it i mean like i think he's sort of the, the, the different paths of the different members of this band have made me made me sort of think really deeply about that thing of four different personalities and who they are and what they want and how that manifests in their job within the band and outside it. Because what they've gone on to do afterwards is really interesting. Because it's like, he's not a small deal as a producer. You know, uh, when you think about the breakout record of The Gossip, that, mm-hmm. I don't know if the same was true in, in America, but that was a really mainstream hit 
standing in the way of control in the UK. Really? I, d- I don't think it was huge here. I could be wrong. Maybe I just wasn't plugged into <laughs> what the hot tracks were at the time. They might have been one of those unusual bands that are from one country and bigger in another. Yeah. Um, but like that, that was all over the place when it came out. And it sounds like he produced it because he did. And it's like it sounds like his sounds, and it sounds like his take on stuff. Hmm. Um, but it's him, I think, guess having like moved to Brooklyn and struck out on his own. And I wonder if he's not really got a songwriter hat on anymore. Yeah, because he's very good at at uh, acting as a vessel for other people's music. Hmm. Yeah, I wonder. Uh, be be good to talk to him. We'll, uh, yeah, I mean, I think you should. <laughs> <laughs> we'll move. We'll move heaven and earth to have Guy on the show at some point. That would be amazing. Be be really good. <laughs> but I mean, but, no guarantees. But talking about no, no, of course. But um, yeah, him joining Vic's band and plugging in all these effects pedals, you know, delay pedals and big, big, big uh, output changing distortions and all these things, and he's having such a good time being another person and learning something and trying another way to be a musician and i find it so fascinating there's some really good videos of them playing together but he still plays absolutely like himself it's like Hmm. his voice on the music is unmistakable as a guitarist Hmm. but uh, he's he's there as like a kind of hired gun in a way i mean a very play what you want kind of hired gun but still in a band that isn't his band. It's another guy's name on the ticket. Yeah. And I, I find it super interesting. A little bit maybe like a like a Nels Klein and in Wilco sort of thing. It's like Yeah. You can't, like a bit of a name. You can't put too much <laughs> of a leash on this guy. Yeah, for sure. And and like why would you? Like why would you hire somebody like that and be like, okay, I want you to play exactly this? <laughs> it's like the the reason you're there is to I mean, I've seen people do that, like hire quite well known musicians in their in their session bands. And then work, like move heaven and earth to stop them playing like themselves. And it's always a disaster and a really bad <laughs> idea. And they should have just got some kind of idiot who's really good at their instrument and just wants to turn up and clock in and clock out again, you know. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, su- super interesting. And like in that Vic band, they didn't do it. But I find it's a really interesting branch off the Fugazi story to me. Like and and in that Jem Cohen produced the first album Guy played on as well I think as a studio producer, uh, and made it like a filmmaker might make an album you know and it's really fascinating and talking about filmic music and everything. But, yeah, but I'll really have to go back and listen to that again for sure. It's it's really good. Yeah, hmm. super good. But sorry, I'm uh, I'm like tangenting like crazy. <laughs> I've still got like something to say about the bridge. <laughs> yeah, the, I think my main thought on the bridge was it's almost like stoner metal here. Uh, or yeah. If they had like fuzzed out the guitars and made them more yeah. prominent, maybe a little bit slower, it's really got that feel. Was was my main impression about the the bridge chorus, whatever. Absolutely, and like you know, like pentatonics have that power, don't they? They can be absolutely anything. So it can be Irish folk music, or it can be like any heavy metal up to the 1990s. Yeah. It's pentatonic. It's just folk music. It's just the kind of thing that you play when you want to play something cool sounding together. Right, yeah. You know, <laughs> blues. It's like blues, the obvious link. Fugazi have like 
a ton of blues flavour in there without ever doing anything that you would overtly say, oh, there, there's the blues bit. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Which would be awful, right? <laughs> but like, but there's, yeah, that whole like, boom, 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 it's like a, that's like a blues. <laughs> it's really cool. That's true. I, I never thought you say, of that It's one, really yeah. heavy. Hmm. Ah, for sure. And again, like, uh, oh, let me think. No, I was about to make a point that doesn't make sense. But yeah. It, 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 it is and you know it's got that root and the guitar's a bit designed to do those things obviously it pushes your hands into those positions because that's what it's designed to play but it's definitely there's a lineage in the music that does that and it's again folk music people playing together doing things that feel strong and obvious in a good way and that's the kind of thing you're going to come out with but that sort of leads me on to thinking about how this tune went across live as well yeah, did did you have any thoughts on on it as as a live tra- uh as a live song as such? Well, so if you listen to the studio version right, it, this was the the first as I said like Repeater Plus 3 was the first Fugazi record I'd heard. And I have to confess like the these big stops, they as we've talked about before like how effective they are and everything, but I was a bit like that's weird. What a weird decision to make. Yeah. as a band to just stop playing for four bars and then start again and like have these little sounds of the instruments and all the stuff that we said and then you watch a show like uh, there's a few good versions of this on YouTube from the 90s early 90s and it makes absolutely perfect sense hmm. it makes absolutely perfect sense because it's like you're doing this big spaced out kind of eerie cowboy melody over the first half and then it stops and the audience are just like (laughs) they're like now we need to do something there's this big hole right and these guys in the band have stopped playing and they're looking at us and you know and so the audience do do something it puts them on the spot and it gets them to react and normally like they just go you know they just shout (laughs) out and the band clearly enjoy it very much because it's like this interplay with the audience and then in comes this thing and it cooks again, you know, really low down, quiet, and then and then again, it's on the audience and then the second time it comes along, they're like, okay, okay, we know this game now and we're gonna, I'm gonna shout out something funny, thinks one guy and I'm gonna yell, thinks another, but it's the collective thing of like 500,000 people all doing that together and it becomes like a... It's a piece of music for the band and the audience. It's a little like then, the, um, the John Cage 433 thing, right? Like where it's the yeah. the famous track that's just the quote-unquote piece of music that's simply silence. But I think the yeah. original idea was, you know, you'd quote-unquote perform this. And sure. part of what made it the piece that it is is the, the noises that would happen organically via the yeah. audience or whatever. Yeah, what does the room do? What do the people listening to it do? Yeah. What do the musicians do? Because in that piece of music, like very often there's an orchestra sitting on the stage, you know, not playing it. Right. So what do they do? Like, what does it feel like? What does it look like? Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, the building of tension, that piece of music, 4 minutes 33, is it 4 minutes 33? I believe so, yeah. Um, Like, obviously part of the demonstration of that and the title is to, to yell at you how long that short period of time is. 
when right. nothing happens, <laughs> right? <laughs> and that's, and you, that's true and, with these pauses. Like, I, I would like to go back and time out how exactly how long they are on the recording. Sure. I'm sure it would... I mean, they're, they're like four bars, so yeah. it's whatever that is. And they're always... Yeah, like five seconds or something, bars. but it feels like quite long. Well, it's, it's longer. It's longer, I think. Oh, so, tick, tick, tick. Dumb. It's that long, right? right <laughs> Whatever right, right. that is. <laughs> um, and it, but yeah, it like absolutely. If you, I mean, famously, right? They're not a band that does anything with lighting, but if you were a lighting engineer, you'd bring up the house lights in those four bar gaps, wouldn't you? Because it's so obvious what they're for. <laughs> they're there to like put the spotlight on the audience and be like, ha, like a surprise thing. And it like it hangs the whole thing together. And then, of course. You kind of dun 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 ba ba da. You've got this big section in the middle, and it's joyous at that stage because there's been this tension, different kind of tension, tension, different kind of tension. Oh, now nobody's doing something, and I just shouted out, and like you know, and everybody's a bit embarrassed and feeling a bit weird. And then there's a huge thing where everyone plays the same thing on the stage, <laughs> and like the audience start to jump around. You know, at that point, until that point. You can't jump around in this song until that point comes along. You're not going to jump around to this quiet bass line. You know, it's a yeah, you're kind of like kind of groove vibe a little it's bit. It's a nodding thing, right? Yeah. It's like the the guys down the front like nodding. It's a guy at the front nodding bit, and then there's this unignorable like metal bit in the middle. It's really cool. It's a dialogue with the audience, you know. And so maybe the thing of opening with it isn't just necessarily about the kindness to front a house and getting your monitors sorted, although I dare say it absolutely is as well. It's like, now is the time to listen. You never know when we might all stop playing and stare at you. <laughs> you never know when you might be needed to do something in this show. This isn't about us up in front of you. This is about you out in front of us. Everyone's here together and something together is going to happen. Collaborative. You know, it's not just somebody pressing play up on the stage. This is something that we're going to do together. And it, I think it really, really, really feels that way. And that's my like, sort of core defense of it as an instrumental. That's a brilliant if, observation, I think. And it's like, it so dovetails with, I think, the relationship they wanted to have with their audience and like reminding yeah. the audience that, look, it's, it's important how you act also like in, in being a part of this show and making sure that it comes off well. You know, they're, they're famous, you know... Um, uh, uh, scolding people who are, you yeah. know, punching people or, or stage diving or whatever. It's like, well, that's that's a part of it. They they felt strongly that you've we've got to be safe here. Like we're gonna have fun, but we're gonna do it in a safe way, and that re there requires everyone's participation and cooperation. And so, absolutely, it really goes along with that. I think. And actually, if there's been these long, feeling endless sections where during the first song. The band has stopped playing and looked at you. That feeling might be quite implicit. It's like, what kind of behavior are you on today? Mm -hmm. You know, and you'll really <laughs> see <laughs> this isn't a consequence free environment. You're not an uh, anonymous drone here. Yeah. We're looking at you. You're looking at us. This is something that we're, we're going to do together. I think it's like, it's an amazing summary of the band, I think. Like, and they're relationship to the gig and it you don't get that off the record that's uh 
that's very well observed. I <laughs> I can even imagine now that you say that, it's a good like uh, those pauses are a good little section for them to like look out into the audience and see if we can identify any troublemakers <laughs> that we're going to have to keep an yeah. eye on <laughs> for the rest of the show. And it's a little bit like, you know, when you're in drama class, right? Yeah. And you they go around the circle and they go, okay, you do something. Uh-huh. <laughs> and everybody's looking at you. And it's like, you, it's a test of personality. It's a, te- it's a kind of Rochash first reactions test hmm. of like, you know, what, what will happen when we all stop playing and look at you? It's like the third time I've said that now, but it, it, yeah. I think it's super, super interesting. And I bet you, like, little post-show chats, I bet there will have been a lot of, like, hey, interesting what those guys did when we played Joe number one today. Yeah, Because well, it would have been a bit different every night. If you, know? you listen to interviews with Ian Mackay... Uh, it may be that he just has a preternaturally amazing power of recall, but he, like, he'll talk about a show that happened in 1993 and be like, yeah. oh, the, the crowd was amazing that night or, or something. Like, he remembers specific uh, and out of so many shows that Fugazi played, right? And uh, it's you just get the feeling that he really paid attention to the audience and how yes. they were feeding back uh, of you know what Fugazi was giving them, and that whole just sort of feedback loop of audience performer dynamic. Yeah, and I mean that's the hardest thing as a band, I think. I mean, in in your playing career, how many gigs have you done on a clip, sort of like without a break? Hmm. Hmm. Good question. Because <laughs> <laughs> after about three it starts to get quite hard to tell them apart and after about 30 uh, you're starting to really ask yourself if you even exist anymore (laughs) do you know what i mean i gotta say it would be it would be much easier if you uh came into it with a sort of popularity that would have a whole crowd like uh like champing at the bit to uh, to hear more the sure. way Fugazi did <laughs> so, yeah no that's true I think I, it, we I all think remember a, the gigs that nobody came to <laughs> yeah like an amateur musician playing to like 10 people you know maybe could be more excused for sort of just like okay here they are bam 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 <laughs> <laughs> yeah oh man it reminds me of kind of a funny anecdote though that I was thinking about when I was thinking about the idea of playing hundreds and hundreds of shows on the trot do you know the actor Stephen Fry yeah yeah uh, and he was in a, a West End theatre production playing a teacher and was going out of his mind at having done this play twice a day for God knows uh, how many in this run and having that existential crisis of like, is the play me now? Do I have anything <laughs> left? Or And he there was a bit in the play where he was ticking off a student and he tapped on a table to get their attention. And he was doing the uh, the matinee performance. So he looked down at the table and the varnish was completely worn away on the section where he tapped the table because he'd done it so many times on the same one-inch spot in the corner of the table. And he had a little bit of a crisis when he came off the stage <laughs> and said, my God, I've never even thought about this. And I tapped this table in exactly the same place twice a day my whole life. I don't have free will. What's happening to me? So he said, right, okay, I need to do something about this. Next performance, I'm going to tap a different part of the table and that's my small act of resistance against just calcifying into a robot really and so he went in and he's like i'm gonna tap the left hand corner of the table and this will remind me that i'm a human again and he was kind of excited kind of fired up to do it and they come up to this point in the play 
and he taps the table at exactly the worn spot <laughs> and realizes that he couldn't not do it. And I can relate to that. Because <laughs> once you've done a bunch of shows, they are the same thing. It, it, it's the human body wants to do the same thing. Water wants to find the easiest route downhill. Right. And it makes the communication with the audience you kind of understand that it's for the band as well. It's for them to feel a distinction and to say, tonight I can be a human being, not a song-playing robot, maybe. Yeah, because it's... otherwise I'm going to start to question whether it's possible for me to, uh, to be anything other than these series of notes. It's know? the kind of thing where... And the no-set list thing and... Yeah, it's the kind of thing where... Um you know the, the repetition gives you power in the beginning like so many people starting out as musicians like they have stage fright and yes. you know the, the best advice is like just like you got to practice your songs until you know them cold like you can play them yeah. uh you know just without hardly even thinking about it and then you know you don't have to worry so much about screwing up so it in the beginning yeah. that gives you power but yeah i can imagine the more you get into a career, uh, and and uh, I think I'm sure Fugazi realized this, having all been in prior bands that saw some degree yeah. of success in their scene, it's like you know, <laughs> we we I think we want a little more freedom here, and not only freedom, but yeah, challenging ourselves to be more human, as you say. Yes, and, you know, play without set lists. Uh, no. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, it's interesting what you just said. That's what we call expertise, isn't it? Is is the ability to not have to think about stuff anymore, muscle memory, whatever you want to call it. It's like it's what we're aiming towards. But there is something on the other side of that line as well that is the sub exact subversion of everything that you work towards to get to that point. And it's the yeah the subversion of calcification, I suppose, and of turning into this thing that is in danger of not caring. Yeah. And it's interesting because it, it goes in circles a little bit because, of course, Fugazi would try, would do that. But then they were so well practiced at being a band that didn't do things in a rigid way that that yes. itself became its own kind of expertise. Um, so I guess that's like Absolutely. A, a, and it, a second layer of expertise on top of the first one. For sure. And, and, and it's the thing that people always talk about, right, isn't it? It's like, oh, they didn't use a set list and they knew... They felt exactly what they wanted to play. And, you know, one of the four of them dived in and began something and it felt so right. And actually the feeling so right thing is I think just that thing of going through the other side of the line of expertise and going through the other side of the line of muscle memory. And it's about the subversion of that, the subversion of being a inverted commas, good, competent band, which is like the other word for that is boring. You know, and it's like they, I haven't seen them play boringly. I mean, I speak as somebody who never went to see them live, but I've like watched a bunch of gigs, you know, on uh, recorded gigs and listened to a bunch of live series stuff. And you can say a lot of stuff about it and you can say a lot of stuff about which ones you liked and which ones you didn't and when they hit those tempos that really cooked and all that stuff. But it is never, ever, ever boring. They try so hard. And they really come with their A-game and they keep each other awake. Well, speaking of A-game, if you want to uh, <laughs> qualify 
some things. Why don't we get into our little segment called Ratings? Do you like me? Do you like me? Do you like me? Where I will ask you, Pete Fraser, about Joe number one. Could you rate it on a scale of one to five stars in the context of the Fugazi catalog? Now. Okay. <laughs> I thought about this quite a lot. It's not really the way I think about music. When I dislike something, I just get the feeling that I haven't really understood what's going on yet. And I definitely, definitely, definitely feel that way about Fugazi as well. So it's like, I mean, I think it's really obvious. Clearly, you know, I've got a lot out of listening to this piece of music. But I I would not know where to begin rating any one of their songs out of five. I wish I wish I could have a, have a clear sort of objective overview. I can tell you I really like it. And I can tell you I think it's really good. But I think all their songs are really good. I genuinely do. It's so, uh, sorry, it's a terrible cop-out. But I might have to cop-out. <laughs> well, how that, about you? That, this episode's not going to be released, and I'll have to find somebody else to talk about <laughs> show number one. No, uh, as, as well, you know, it was nice to talk to you anyway. <laughs> Now, the, the beauty of the rating segment is, if that's your response, I find that equally as valid as actually, you know, assigning a number to it, because it's all about... Oh, that's good. It's all about the listeners' uh, purely subjective, you know, how a song impacts them, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, I'm, I'm not copping out, because I really do, like, things come and go for me all the time, and I'll have something I've not listened to for a while, and just been like, ah, oh, yeah, I remember just going off that a little bit. And then I'll stick it on again, and it's like, oh my god, I, what was I thinking? This is fantastic. This pushes every button, uh, <laughs> and it just it there th- there is no relevant scale in my brain. It's too chaotic. That's that's legit, and I mean, <laughs> part of this is it's not only a subjective uh, measurement, but also a subjective measurement of a uh, for a moment in time. Um, so right, okay, yeah. Purely talking uh, today, as I speak to you from uh, from across the Atlantic, and uh, all all the things that are going on in my life today and right now and in the world, I will say that Joe Number One by Fugazi is a four star song. So nice. Put it in the book. Oh, glad about that. And then immediately erase it because uh, it's a, <laughs> all things are a flowing. Um, I'm glad you didn't say say two or whatever, because then I'd be like, man, <laughs> you went through that whole conversation with me <laughs> secretly uh, harboring these resentments. <laughs> secretly, that's the subtitle of this uh, podcast, secretly harboring <laughs> resentments. Uh, we all secretly harbor a few resentments, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> let me give a little airtime to our friends on social media a little bit Please more. Do. We mentioned John Rash's comment earlier. Colin Mack says, in my dream set list, this would be the opener. Mm. Rudy Baines says, I've waited years for Joe number two, but they never came out with a sequel. They really (laughs) squandered a franchise opportunity when they could have had Joe's one to three, then wait a decade or so and come out with Joe Origins, (laughs) Joe Apocalypse Endgame, Joe Final Stand, Joe Harder. Um, You're you're a very silly person, Rudy. Thank you for the comment. um... But that leads... (laughs) A uh, friend of the show, Junter Hobbits, to say uh, he pointed out something amazing that I wish I had known uh, at the beginning of the show, which is that you know he's done all these reviews of live shows, and he points out that in Fugazi's second show ever, which was in 1987, uh, September 26th, um, Ian 
breaks a guitar string, and as he's fixing it, he urges Brendan and Joe to play what he refers to as Joe Number Two, which <laughs> is a a jam that would eventually evolve into the song and the same. So okay, turns out there is a Joe Number Two. Uh, I didn't know it uh, at the time, so uh, there you go, uh, people. A little addendum to information for and the same. Oh, that's fun. Uh, but also, like, clearly, uh, Joe Number One is like a, a little rehearsal set note, isn't it? You know, that never got turned into a title. Yeah, yeah. It's like untitled uh, John Coltrane. There's loads of untitled original one, two, three, four. And this is Joe number one. (laughs) Yeah, it seems like most songs, like when they eventually get lyrics attached, but not always, um, the title uh, grabs, you know, something from those lyrics or something that has to do with those lyrics. Um, Although some Fugazi songs just clearly kept their working titles which have nothing to do with the lyrics um mm. always interesting to see that they're kind of diarists titles aren't they very often they're like mm-hmm. either the name of the two grooves that make them up or they're where they wrote them or they're mm-hmm. one thing or another they're documentarians by nature aren't they yeah um and uh i guess actually speaking of that right before we wrap up uh did you ever listen to the first demo version of this Yes, I did. Yeah, I I didn't really have many additional comments, but I guess I would be remiss not to mention it. Um, My main thoughts on that are sort of really even nastier bass sound on that. That's Um, right. There's a bunch of echo or reverb on the guitar. Yeah. Sounds more (laughs) dubby. And certainly uh, the the bridge or the chorus sounds more jerky, like rhythmically punctuated. Um, So either they decided to go in a different direction or they just sort of got more proficient at at playing it so it sounds smoother on the yeah or had somebody being like do you want to do that again yeah right right <laughs> like in the room I, I find them so interesting as a demo band like because it, both their home demos and the demos they did together as a group because they're always like drenched in reverb and effects right and they're a band that don't do that right Unless they're sat at home or they're in the rehearsal room, and then they're like, hey, let's uh, send everything to the reverb bus on a <laughs> four-second reverb. I find it really fascinating, uh, pathologically, kind of, that they want to do that for themselves, but they don't want to project that out into the world. I guess for a while, at least, maybe it didn't fit with the aesthetic, and then eventually no. they got a little bit more uh, experimental with it. Yeah, definitely. Though it might have seemed like old hat to make a studio record that was drenched in reverb in 1991 or whatever. Yeah, that's yeah. true. Uh, it's always reaction and action and reaction with with music about uh, to what came before and what's going on now. Sure. Hmm. And everybody's got a sense of uh, embarrassment about their output as well, <laughs> of like you know what they would secretly like to do and what they actually do. <laughs> well. Uh, Pete, thank you so much for talking with me, especially thank you. about we, we were able to wring such an interesting conversation out of a an instrumental track, which I'm always grateful <laughs> for. So it's been a fantastic Good. talk. Um, I would love to give you the chance to do some plugs. Never mind sure. I'd like to plug two things. The first thing I would like to plug is your like financial subscription thing, which I've noticed you're not doing oh, no, at the I, end of your podcast. I don't want to emphasize this too much. <laughs> <laughs> I want people to pay monthly to listen to this podcast. I think it's important. And I think it was, uh, uh, for those who haven't done it, I think, you know, but checked out every episode, chuck $5 a month into the hat. Come on, guys. 
<laughs> I'll I'd, say it if I'd you be, don't want to. I'd be perfectly happy with one. Oh, there we go. Chuck one dollar a month into the hat. Who can't do that? We <laughs> that would all can. Be, that would be amazing. Um, yeah, there we go. And by all means, uh, go to uh, Down I Go's Bandcamp page and uh, help yourself. It's kind of 15 years worth of weird recordings with me and my two old friends there. One of us lives in Canada, one of us lives in, in Illinois, and I live here in Stockholm. So it's a weird thing, and it's slow and glacial, but we still crank it out, and it's the things we like to do, you know, and it's not for everyone, I'm not going to lie, but, but, you know, we like it, and it's fun, and we try and do the most interesting thing we can think of and turn it into something, and it's turned into many wonderful things over the years and taken us to interesting places, and yeah. I'm just going to assume that Glacial was some sort of uh, intentional Sweden joke, um, and I, I appreciate that. Um, <laughs> we actually recorded the last LP in uh, in Iceland, near the end of a glacier. Oh, there you go. Beautiful place. That <laughs> I, I went to Iceland on my honeymoon. Just driving oh. around, listening to Sigur Rós is amazing. Like I, yes. I could have been happy doing that, not even getting out of the car. What a beautiful place. Um, for sure, we we uh, me and the guitarist stayed a week after and did all that. Oh man, because it was such a nice place to be. Oh, I miss it. Uh, well, uh, my plugs. Uh, yeah, uh, Pete took all the air out of that, so I don't have much else to <laughs> <Sorry>. say. <laughs> you know, as always, email me fugazi a to z at gmail dot com just to say hi, if nothing else. And you can join the Facebook group, the Alphabetical Fugazi. Tell me what you think about stuff that we have coming up, and I hope you'll join me for the next episode when we will be discussing KYEO. Until then, keep your eyes open. This is my life.